chapter of Zephaniah. And words, you know, change their meaning as time goes on. That's always the case. Especially words that are very significant emotionally but not in content. Like greeting words, like good morning. And uh, you get the stupid person who every now and then says, no, it's not. But you're not saying it is a good morning. You're saying, I hope you will have a good morning, which obviously they haven't up until that moment. But you're hoping that they will have better. And likewise, the word goodbye, it means God be with you. But most people don't think of God when they're saying goodbye. There are all kinds of social contact noises which virtually have no meaning other than saying, uh, I'm here and I see you, and, or saying, well, I'm leaving now. That's the content, but hello doesn't actually mean anything particularly. Goodbye doesn't seem to mean much to people. In fact, there are some greetings that you are never to take seriously, like, how are you? Or the Chinese one, have you eaten already? Now, with these greetings, it's rude, if not boorish, to actually take them literally. I mean, there's an old definition of a bore is someone who, when asked, how are you, answers. The organ recital that follows is really of no interest to anyone because the last thing you actually want to have anybody tell you is how they actually are. But yet we use the phrase of how are you, and likewise I understand it's rude to say to someone who's Chinese, no I haven't, lest it be implied that they should now be feeding me. Well this word goodbye, you see God be with you is a lovely thing to say. As you go, God be with you. But is it? Is it a lovely thing to have God with you? There was something of a downside for Judah having God with them. The prophecy of Zephaniah, which we have before us, you can find it on page 952 in uh, your Bibles, and the prophecy of Zephaniah starts off with the warnings of God's judgment in chapters 1 and 2. As we saw in the last couple of weeks, the warnings in the first place were internal in chapter 1 and through to chapter 2, verse 3, internal to Judah, that is God's nation, God's state. Uh, the two southern tribes were left out of the 12 tribes when the 10 northern tribes of Israel were destroyed by the Assyrians. Two southern tribes were left, Judah, and that became the name of the town, the, the, the nation that was around uh, was around Jerusalem, its capital. They may have survived the Assyrian threat, but God was still angry with them, going to judge them and condemn them because of their continued idolatry, because of their syncretistic uh, mixing of other religions, because of their corruption and immorality. Then in chapter 2, the warning of the judgment is external. And so in the rest of the chapter, verses 4 through to 15, as we saw last week, the judgment and warning that is coming upon Judah is spilt out to the nations. And they're listed out there, Philistia and Moab and Ammon and Cush and Assyria. But in the warnings of judgment that are coming upon the nations, there is a shift in a sub-theme coming out of salvation. So in chapter 2, verse 3, the end of the judgment section on Judah, there is a perhaps, perhaps God might hide you in the moment of judgment. But that perhaps turns into an assurity and a certainty 
in the rest of the chapter in 2 verses 7 and verses 9 that they will be saved. The remnant who put their trust in God will be saved in the judgment. And then, astonishingly, in verse 11, it speaks of other nations also being saved, not just the people of Judah, not just the remnant of the people of Judah, but people who aren't Judah at all. Some Gentiles, some nations are going to be saved while the nation Judah is going to be destroyed. Chapter 3 starts again on the theme of judgment with God in the rebellious city. But what city is he talking about? At first it sounds like Nineveh, the great and godless capital city of Assyria which was still standing in the time of Zephaniah but was destroyed just at the end of Zephaniah's time as a prophet. And so it sounds like Nineveh because that's how chapter 2 finishes. Remember, there are no chapter divisions in the Bible. They are written many years later by the early century publishers of the Bible. The, the chapters just flow on in the Bible. If you look at chapter 2, verse uh, where are we picking of verse 13? We read chapter 2, 13, page 954. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold. For her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no other else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. It sounds like it's Nineveh in chapter 3 verse 1. But then suddenly, as we read on in verse 2, it's not Nineveh. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Well, you see how the word Lord is printed in your Bibles in uppercase, capital letters all the way through. That's because in the Hebrew is the word Yahweh is there. She doesn't trust in Yahweh. Well, of course Nineveh doesn't trust in Yahweh. Nineveh doesn't follow Yahweh. It's Judah, it's Jerusalem that follows Yahweh. She doesn't draw near to her God. Well, this is indeed surprising to actually think of Yahweh as Nineveh's God. I mean, in one sense, Yahweh is Nineveh's God because Yahweh is the God of all the world but not really the God of Assyria. Assyria had their gods and Judah had their God and their God was Yahweh. And this is the city of God that we're talking of here. I often criticise chapter divisions and publishers of Bibles because they seem to get it wrong so often. So let me say on this occasion they've got it right. Just like to run that up and you might like to mention that to Mr Zondervan or Mr Crossways or whoever it is that on this occasion they've got it right. It's an ancient Bible verse but chapter 3 is actually moving ahead to a different thing. But on the same hand you're supposed to get a bit of a kick of the teeth I think in this. 
You can imagine the Jew listening here and saying, yes, yes Assyria, Nineveh is going to get its coming, it's come up, it should get its come up, it's that's right. And then suddenly it turns out not to be Nineveh at all, it turns out to be Jerusalem, that there is the problem. Indeed, it's worse than that. For Jerusalem has rejected its own God. Assyria hasn't rejected its own God. Its own God might be a false God that's not worth worshipping, but at least they were loyal to their own gods. Jerusalem is not even loyal to its own God. Who is the true God, the real God, the God of all? They have rejected God by not listening to his voice, not accepting his correction. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. But they're also like Nineveh, with the oppressors and rebellious and defiled running the city. Verse 1, who is her who is rebellious and defiled? Is the oppressing city. And this oppression, this rebellious city's leaders are then spelled out for us in verses 3 and 4. Officials who go around like roaring lions, judges who go around like the evening wolves. Uh, I'm not really up on wolves, but I presume they're the hungry ones. They're the ones coming out to grasp and to, to destroy. Prophets who are fickle change their mind all the time. What's the use of a prophet who's going to keep changing his mind? Tomorrow this is going to happen. And then when tomorrow comes, oh no, that's not going to happen. This is going to happen. A prophet who changes his mind is not a prophet worth having. And they're treacherous men, in fact. And priests who profane what is holy. This is bad news. When you have nobody in your society who can bring you to justice, when your police force is corrupt, and when your judges uh, are corrupt, when the prophets who preach for money and say whatever listeners want to hear, and when the priests who degenerate and defile what they're appointed to honour and keep sacred, society is completely destroyed. Oh, it might be operating all well. Oh, yes, it might be operating. The law courts might actually be very profitable. But that doesn't mean the society is operating properly. It's really got cancer riddled through the system. But worse still is verse 5. For the Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Hey, you think, oh, that's really good. At least they've got God still with them. No, that's really bad. They've got God with them. The God who is righteous. The God who does no injustice. We read he is there in Jerusalem. He's not like the corrupt leaders. He's righteous and always does that which is just. And every morning he faithfully rises up the sun for a new day to bring light upon us and to shine again upon what this city is doing. But the evil, the unjust, they have become shameless. You know, hypocrisy is a really bad thing. But being shameless is worse. The hypocrite at least says there is right and wrong, and I'd like you to think I'm doing the right when I'm doing the wrong. But the shameless says, I'm doing the wrong and I'm proud of it. That actually is worse. That is a worse state to be in. I was, went to a medical centre the other day on my endless round of tests that are showing nothing. I've never failed so many tests in my life, actually. Except in second class, I wasn't really crash hot then. Anyway, I was in this medical centre the other day in a lift and there were only two of us in the lift and it was Monday morning and uh, the other person or woman was a middle-aged worker 
and she really looked like Monday morning at, at its worst. I mean, it was just a fairly bad state that she seemed to be in, and so I asked if she was okay because she, she didn't look okay, even though she had the uniform of somebody working there, not a patient, but she looked worse than I did, and I was the patient. So I said, are you okay? She said, oh, I'm not too bright today, just recovering from the weekend. Had five tequilas in a row last night, and I think that was a bit too much for me as she clutched onto her coffee. But it was totally shameless, amused and boasting of her weekend, showing no signs of being ashamed of drinking to excess, showing no shame of coming to work at a medical centre with a hangover. It was all strange, to put it mildly. Now, that's only a minor insignificant thing compared to immoral priests, fickle prophets, rapacious judges, hungry rulers. But it's just typical of a society that goes into corruption. In the end, they move beyond hypocrisy into shamelessness. And at that point, there seems no hope left. Of course, it was worse in Zephaniah's day. Worse because Jerusalem, unlike Sydney, was the city of God. This was God, Yahweh, the Lord's holy city. And this is how the people of God were living. It was appalling. The Lord, who had cut off nations, who didn't know him, who didn't have his law, who didn't have his prophets or his priests, who were not his city with his temple. He cut them off. They were not his chosen people, but he cut them off for their immorality and their decadence. He destroyed them. He laid waste to them. Desolate they were, ravaged and destroyed, so that there was nobody even to walk around their streets, says Zephaniah. That is what God has done to godless cities who weren't his city, to godless nations who weren't his nation. And now here is his city and his nation, and they are godless. And, worse still, blaspheming his name as they were. Remember, you mustn't take the name of the Lord in vain, and they'd taken his name. They didn't take the warning. They wouldn't accept correction. They wouldn't turn back and seek the Lord. Even though you see a city like Nineveh destroyed, you say, oh, well, that's all right. You don't say, well, hang on. They didn't know God, and that's what God did to them. We are the ones who have God's word. And will he not do more to us? No, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, strangely, perversely, wickedly, were eager to act corruptly. We read of it at the end of verse 7. I said, surely you will fear me, you will accept correction, then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I've appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Ah, such commitment to doing their own thing their own way. Such commitment to rebellion against God. Such entanglement that sin overwhelms us with. 
that they cannot see the stupidity of their actions. Well, that is the character of sin, isn't it? That's the folly of it. That even though you know it is self-destructive, we still keep on doing it. And they will not take the warning of God seriously. Look back over a page, back to chapter 1, verse 12. Chapter 1, verse 12, when he's just bringing the judgment on Judah. He says, at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. God is either powerless or he's disinterested because I can do whatever I like. He's not going to reward me. He's not going to punish me. I can just go on living the way I like to live without fear of being caught or being punished. But remember, friends, as the psalm says, it is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God, that God cannot see, that God doesn't care, that God will not act. Chapter 3, verse 5, we are told, the Lord is within Jerusalem. And his people have to wait for me, he says. For he declares in verse 8, Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Wait. Wait for me. The fact that God hasn't judged us yesterday doesn't mean that he's not going to judge us tomorrow. The fact that I'm alive today, continuing in my sinfulness, doesn't mean my sinfulness doesn't matter. Or that God can't see my sinfulness. Or I'm not going to be called to account for my sinfulness. That's always the trouble with a criminal who's getting away with his crime, isn't it? He keeps on thinking he's going to always get away with his crime. He got away with it last week. He bribed off that policeman last year. He paid off the judge two years ago. He can't be touched by anybody until the day comes when indeed he is entrapped and caught and brought to justice. And so we think, well, God hasn't punished me yesterday. It will be all right. But God says, wait. Wait for me. Wait for me to act. For when I act in my good time... I will act on a level almost beyond imagining. As I suggested to you last week, the destruction of Nineveh was an extraordinary event of enormous speed and total destruction. The only thing in our lifetime I can think that's really like it was the bringing down of the Berlin Wall. A couple of years before it happened, you thought that wall was there forever. And then almost overnight, the wall came down. Well, likewise... Here he is talking about Nineveh and Nineveh being destroyed and the Judah thinking they're safe, they're secure. After all, a hundred years earlier when Nineveh tried to capture Jerusalem, it failed. Hezekiah, Sennacherib had Hezekiah bottled up in Jerusalem and after a while, after a long while, finally Sennacherib gave up and went home. We know about it from the Greek historians as well as from the Old Testament. It happened and Jerusalem was saved. And so the people thought, well, <laughs> we will never be destroyed. We are God's city. We will no- nothing will happen to us. 
But Zephaniah is saying, no, you'll be destroyed. There is a destruction coming that is just going to overwhelm you as it overwhelms the nations. And within a generation, Babylon arose. Nebuchadnezzar arose. And Jerusalem was flattened. And the temple was flattened. It looked an impossibility. But it happened. Just as Babylon looked like, well, it had the hanging gardens of Babylon. It was a wealthy, prosperous, magnificent. It was the great city of its time. And 70 years later, overnight, it too was destroyed. People talk of the financial worlds and some of the talk they have, I, I don't actually understand. One of the things I don't understand is why people talk about securities never seems to be so secure to me. As, as a word, it sounds like a spin doctor word. What security is there in the markets? And can you do anything about it? Not really. We are a little nation in a world market where there are some individuals big enough to buy and sell us in such a fashion as to put our markets into chaos. America goes into trouble, Europe goes into trouble. Do you think Australia is somehow immune from trouble? Do you think our market system of the world is safe and secure? Well, it felt like it some years ago, didn't it? Only if you've got a short memory. If you've got any memory at all, you'll know that it comes and goes and comes and goes. There's booms, there's busts. They always happen. But every time there's a boom on, people forget that busts come. Couldn't happen now. When I was in high school... In the 1960s, I did economics, um, or economics did me, I'm not quite sure which, but I remember my teacher telling me, because remember we were in the 60s then, that we will never again have a depression, that the world depression of the 1930s meant we learnt how economics now worked and we would never have another one. I thought it was a great idea, although being a cynical teenager, I didn't think it was right. I had no idea how wrong it was. God says, wait. His judgment will come in his time. Not your time, not my time, his time. But it will come. For God's plan involves the whole world. And the judgment that will come will bring all the nations and all the kingdoms down because of his righteous, jealous anger. Anger and jealousy are not evil things. We are evil. They are not. And God in his anger and in his jealousy is right. It's right for him to be angry with sin and to be jealous for the truth and faithfulness. Then in verse 9, there is a sudden change. There's still the judgment, but it's now mixed with salvation as we move with God from the rebellious city to the restored city. And God was in the rebellious city, which is why it was coming to judgment, but God is going to be in the restored city as well. For God's judgment will involve saving the nations, not just Judah, but the nations of the world. And so we here see that they, they're going to be purified tongues so that all the nations of the world will call on God with a common voice. Now, this isn't Esperanto. We've got to invent a language that everybody can speak together. This is just the reversal of the Tower of Babel. This is the reversal of that judgment when you walk down the main street of your city and can't understand what they're talking because they're talking a foreign language because your nation's been defeated. That's going to be done away with now. Of course, God's language will be spoken by all people as we speak in harmony and unity with each other, calling upon the name of God. And the remnant of God's people will return to the promised land. Even from Cush, he says, Cush, 
Cush is the end of the world as far as they're concerned. Cush was Sudan. So from beyond the Sudan, from deep down in Africa where the people have been taken, they will come, my worshippers will come, the dispersed ones will come. And on that day they'll not be put to shame. On that day things are going to be different. Here is the picture of God's salvation. Not just on those in Judah and Jerusalem, but also on Israel and the lost tribes and those destroyed by the Assyrians. And they'll be without shame, not because they're shameless, but because their sin will be forgiven and the sinners will be removed from the land. And it's the picture of the meek who shall inherit the earth and the humble who listen to God's word and who seek refuge in God. You remember the Wesley hymn which has that wonderful line in it, that paragraph in it, Hide me, O my Saviour, hide till the storms of life is past. Safe into the haven guide, O receive my soul at last. Other refuges have I none. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, ah, leave me not alone. Still support and comfort me. He has nobody else to rely upon than God. And that's what these people will be like humble and meek and relying upon God as their whole being and life. And the difference is, the king is with you. So when the Lord takes away all the judgments against you and clears you of all your enemies, then the king, the king of Israel, the Lord himself will be with you and never again leave you. And so the judgment that stood against the city and the citizens will be done away with, there will be no longer any accusations, for God has destroyed the enemy, the oppressors in verse 19, they'll all be dealt with by God, which is why there will be salvation overflowing in that wonderful description at the end of the chapter, when there will be no more fear, and the Lord will be amongst them, and you'll be quiet by his love, and he will sing. It's extraordinary. It's the only verse I've ever seen, verse 17, the end of it, where God himself exalts over you with loud singing. And you'll gather. It's a wonderful picture of heaven that we have, of the judgment of the salvation that comes. There'll be no fear but joy and gladness and singing and no shame, no reproach. Even those who are lame... Those like the lepers who are outcasts, they'll all be brought in and cleansed and Jerusalem will be as it was meant to be, the place that brings honour and glory to God, for this is the restoration. Look at verse 20. At that time I will bring you in. At that time I'll gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Compare that to verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled to the oppressing city, listens to no voice, accepts no correction, doesn't trust in the Lord, doesn't draw near to her God. From verse 1, you have the city in rebellion, the Lord in the city in rebellion. In verse 20, you have the Lord, the presence of the Lord in the city of salvation. It's a wonderful chapter at this point, for there is this parallel. The two cities are so different but they have the one same thing, the Lord in their presence. In the New Testament, of course, it's Jesus who is God with us. We call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And he came to pay the penalty for sin, to bring the judgment upon the nations and upon the city. And he was the humble man who did not sin. No deceit was found in his lips. He's the one who is this. And the salvation he won did away with the judgments against us and took our shame from us. 
and not only the Jews of Judah, but all who welcome the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in their lives. For the fulfilment of Zephaniah is not in Palestine today, in Jerusalem, but in Jesus, the one true Jew, who by his death brought salvation and judgment at the same time. So when I say to you today goodbye, I am saying to you, God be with you. But you know, that can be a curse or that could be a blessing. For if you are not with God, it's a curse to say, God be with you. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a blessing to say, God be with you. So as I finish this study and as Andrew comes forward and I get ready to pray, let me say to you, goodbye. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that in him, indeed, you are with us. You were in his life and death. You are with us through your spirit that he bestowed upon us. We pray that each one of us might know you as our Father, that we may know you to be with us in salvation and not in judgment. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.